Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Let's go to Rashi now. I think that we are on verse uh, 7, right? Um, we read reference to verse 6, then Rashi is not on it, but we can, we can read it again quickly just to get some momentum. Chapter 1 of Shemot, verse 6, Vayamot Yosef v'cholachav, Yosef died and all of his brothers, v'chol hador hahu, and the entire generation. And we, we lingered on that in terms of who is included, who is not included. We also talked about why Rashi doesn't, doesn't make the argument yet that really, um, everyone who was alive at the time has died. We several generations passed because he wants to preserve, or I don't know which order he did this in, either he already knows the comment he's going to make on verse 8, or once he realized the comment he's going to make on verse 8, he decided to not go in the direction that some of the other commentators went in terms of discussing um, uh, who else might be alive from the generation. But for the now, the Torah says that Yosef is gone, his brothers are gone, and everyone from that generation, right? There are a lot of ways of understanding it. Everyone from Joseph's generation, or everyone who was alive when Joseph was alive, it's unclear, but time has passed, right? It's actually a pretty rare um, temporal scene change in the Torah. Sometimes we jump ahead by a lot of years in the Torah without the Torah telling us that that's happening. We can just infer it. Here, the Torah says, right, right? new scene, new era, right? And now we get to verse number Seven. Matt, do you want to read Bnei Israel? Okay, but we didn't do the Rashi on it. The children of Israel. Good. And we discussed how one way of understanding the four verbs, potentially, is A, B, A, B, where the A's represent something empirical, and the B's represent the experience of that, that growth had upon the inhabitants. They became many. It was experienced as if they were swarmed, right? They grew. It was experienced as if they were growing too strong, almost setting up verse 8, which we all know is coming because it's, a, it's such an important verse in the history and the psyche of the Jewish people that the people we were living amongst thought that we were getting to be too great. Okay. A quick grammatical question. Did yeah. We, did we talk about the, the bet in the first ma'od? Bin od? We talked about the doubling of the ma'od, right. ma'od, but not the bet. Correct. We didn't talk about the bet so much. Can you just explain that briefly? No. Um, I don't have a great explanation for it. If you look quickly, um, um, Uncleus takes it out. Uncleus takes takes Vayatzmu and turns it into Utikifu. It became strong. And whatever the force of the preposition of the bet in ma'od, ma'od is... Uncleus into Aramaic just turns it into lachta lachta, lots and lots. So, um, the, the best way I could possibly render it in English is, and they and they strength they strengthened with much muchness. That there's like there's a there's an implied with in English, or in English it would be a with. Um, do any of the translations give any nod towards that bet? 
greatly. Very greatly. So no no preposition. What, say that again? That's the ma'od ma'od, which is a Hebraic thing that nobody mentioned last week that knows more than I do. But when they when Hebrew puts the two words together like that, or in Samuel, ha'na'ar, na'ar, that means very young, for instance. Right. Not just a young lad, but a very young lad. So that's the doubling. Very, very And it's consistent throughout the Torah that these doublings occur. <laughs> Sometimes a sneeze is just a sneeze, okay? So, but does any other translation have uh, render the bed at all? Very fast, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a good question. It, it's it's probably some implied, um, um, almost like um, imagine an adverb operating as a noun, right? So it, it, it's, it's an adverb because it's describing the growth, but it's, it's nounifying the adverb, so with muchliness, with much muchliness, something like that. Okay. Um, on our Rashi, and it can be different if you have a different Rashi, you first have uh, words in brackets, right, with a small footnote five that tells you that it doesn't appear in all printing. And then you have the shorter comment of the Rashi with footnote six. I want to read the shorter comment of the Rashi first because that's the one that's, that's obviously Rashi or that's everyone agrees is Rashi. And then we'll go back and look at the Paru. So on Vayishritsu, um, Matt, did you have a question, Rick? Uh, don't you have Josh before we leave Melamela? Sure. So, um, just hit me. So the A-B-A-B, that's what it's the A's, those verbs are and the bees are for the Egyptians, okay, how they felt about things. So the first mode could be for the Israelites, and the second mode they had yet not that's the high point or the midpoint of the sentence, that's for the Egyptians. So kind of like the hysteria, if it is, about the, the virus, the Egyptians really felt, um, or somebody felt uh, in the Egyptian hierarchy that the Israelites were really young. Uh, Serious you say that, that e- that mode was more than the other mode. Uh-huh. Are you saying that one that one of the maod refers to the to the first the first and the third verbs and the se- second maod refers to the second and fourth verbs? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Um, uh, Matt, let's read Vaishatsu and can someone pass down the uh, Purell again? Because since I did sneeze I'd like to Purified. Okay. The Keres. How dare it be in Rashi script? Rashi never had to learn Rashi. That's true. Rashi also didn't wasn't able to learn Rashi with Rashi. Yeah. But, yeah well, so the word is keres. But but, be, but yes, if you were pointing, it would be becheres because you, you've, the dot comes out of the the, the right. Anyone know, anyone know what keres is? 
It's a po- it could be a pocket, but it's but here it means a, it's a womb. It's another word for a womb. There's a famous um, Mishnah in Masachet, I believe, Megillah, might be Rosh Hashanah, that is the that is the back and forth between Rabbi Yeshua and Rabban Gamliel on rabbinic authority and deciding who has the authority to determine when the new moon is. Um, and there's some there, there's some reference in there that a witness said that they saw the moon one night and didn't see the moon the next night. And so the question is, can that witness be which of those two testimonies should be believed? And to make a long story short, there's a reference there to it. It can't be that a woman is 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 not pregnant one day and then pregnant the other day, right? That it it, it has to be the other the other other direction, right? You go from pregnant. To the baby being out, not the baby being out and being pregnant again, and the and the use there in Mishnaic Hebrew is not rechem, which is what we use for room, but keres. Okay, um, so uh, that's what the word means. What does the phrase mean? What, what Rashi says, and they swarmed, meaning what? Right, six tuplets. Okay, so Rashi quotes the Midrash in Tanchuma that says. This Vayishritsu, as opposed to the Paru, Paru means they had a lot of children. Vayishritsu means they had a lot of children per pregnancy, right? What's the, what's the play there? Why is that, forget about the fanciful notion of it, why is that an apt reading of Vayishritsu as a commentary on Paru? What is a Sheretz? It's a, it, it's a, it's a swarming, creepy crawler thing, and it's a reference usually to species that have Lo- multiple births, right? So paru means that they were fecund and and they were all very fertile and children were born. Vayishritsu means in a, some in this generation they were able to actually produce the way shvatsim produce, which is they become many much more quickly than humans become many. Okay, that's the midrash in Parshat in um, in, um, in Tanchuma. There's a super commentary on Rashi. I forgot um, which one it is. It says that. Um, there are differences of opinions as to why six, right? And for the moment, just put aside that the rabbi's command of zoology was not perfect, but it doesn't mean that they, they, they knew nothing, right? And so some believe that the, re- the reference to six is that six represents the, the, the normal um, l- uh, load of children for what's considered the largest of the shratzim, which is the akhbar, the big field mouse, Right, and some people believe that it's the normal load of children for the smallest of the shratzim, which is the akrav, akbar akrav, which is a scorpion. I know nothing about how many babies either field mice or scorpions have, but according to this, that it, it wasn't just a random number; that it was the it was the rabbi's way of understanding in in the shratzim that they knew either the largest or the smallest. What was the average um, litter? Six, Stevie. It's not just that there are six words. Uh... Yeah. That could be do what you you have that as a footnote? No, I have that as a middle school. Right. And of course if you start counting with Bene Israel it suggests eight. And if you go all the way in the verse it suggests eleven. So that's one possibility, um, and anyone else want to make a comment on that as 
as the impact of Vayish with Sue. Sue and then Marshall? The four? That those four words in particular could have parallels to the four times. I see. Uh-huh. Right. The four, the the four, four verbs yeah. that shows the increase into Egypt could ha- you're saying but could... The attitudes and yeah. how, how, you know, the, the four qualities of the Israelites. Mm-hmm. Marshall, then Alexander, then I want to go back to the Rashi itself. The negative implication of the word Yishritsu is softened by the Targumist, by the Ukulist, where it says, that they increased and they gave birth. So they don't want to cast aspersions on the Israel and say, well, they really proliferated like reptiles. No, they just gave birth. Right. Softening it. Soft. Right, and so Uncleus's softening of Ayishwitsu amplifies the oddness of Ayishwitsu, right? The Torah referring to the Israelites as the thing that are going to become considered trafe and detestable to their offspring, right? And I don't have to tell you how evocative it is of uh, centuries of propaganda against Jews or against anyone who's considered to be the other and, and, and swarming, right? The growth of my family lands very differently psychologically than the growth of your family if you're an other, right? So it's a very, it's a very strange word. It's a very strange midrash that says that they gave birth to sextuplets. I don't think the rabbis really wanted the readers of the midrash to believe that, that miracles were happening and six people, six babies were being born per pregnancy. But it's trying to deal with why the Torah would have chosen the word Vayishvatsu. And again, maybe an indication that we're supposed to understand that verb as the experience that the Egyptians had in seeing this growth to set up the verse that's coming. Alexandra. So I think what I'm probably easily misunderstood, but um, so I hope it comes out right. But I. To me, that seems so odd, this explanation. And when we were looking at this uh, paragraph or this sentence last week, I was thinking that it, to me, sounds not so much that this is how the Egyptians described the Israelites, but this is how God described this generation of the Israelites. Because they were no longer like people described by their soul, their nefesh. They were now described by their behavior. And they became very, very strong that's kind of the way you talk to a child. Oh, you're very, very strong, and because and meaning they're not the way your story lets me explain that. Um, so, I, to me, it's the way God described this generation mm-hmm. having lost touch with their souls. Mm-hmm. The Torah definitely wants us to imagine, either from God's perspective or from the Egyptians' perspective, some some huge and exponential increase. Up until now, we've known the name 
of everyone in the tribe, at least of the males, right? But we're able to count them, right? God can count all the stars, but we, can, we only count the people that we know. And all of a sudden, the Torah wants us to imagine that one, right? So, Vayishwetsu does go the, and on some level, thank goodness, because without that tremendous increase, you can play this both ways, without the tremendous increase on the one hand, perhaps Pharaoh would not have gotten so nervous and wouldn't have enslaved us. On the other hand, had they not become such an enormous nation, could they possibly have withstood and survived the enslavement? They would have just been, des- they would have been, they would have been eliminated, right? So there's, there's also a catch-22 in the impact of the exponential growth. It both invites the oppression and gives a numerical bulwark against the oppression. Right? Many ancient peoples have been enslaved and poof, they're gone. Stevie, Larry, Sue? Just about the, whether to take this literally or not, I mean, the Rashi literally or the Torah literally? The, the Midrash. Okay. But, but the Torah does seem to apply going from, like you said, 70 people to hundreds of thousands, right? In, you know, four generations or so. Right. So, right. Yeah. Like, I don't think this is as four generations. It depends on which family. But, uh, but in a, whatever, a handful of generations, that sort of increase does seem to require a supernatural, you know. Yeah, and again, v'chol hador hahu, talk about how closely we read that phrase. Does that mean literally one generation? Is that the Torah's way of saying a long time later, right? And that's also going to come up again in the next verse. And there was a new king over Egypt, the next new king, right? Or many generations of Pharaonic leaders later. You're right. By the time they're in slavery, well, by the time they emerge from slavery... You, you've gone from 70, we have a number, 70 at least of the, of, uh, the people come down, to hundreds of thousands, right? So there's got to be some way midrashically to explain that. Larry and then... Good. Larry, Sue, Barry. Take on from what Alexandra and what Rabbi Kripal said. There's two ways to look at immigrants and immigrants expanding in any society. And one is to say... One is the fearful way, which is expressed here. They swarmed. But the other is to say they arrived and they prospered. Yeah. If you, you just use the word prosper in your mind, right. and they prospered and they grew and they and they and they, and they, they then expanded into society, you have a very positive outlook. Yeah. Both the Torah, but also all the commentary. From what I can tell, none of the commentators actually try to even go in the other direction at all. Right. Um, I would rather think that that the Hebrews because they filled the land. Yeah. They prospered and they became great. That became a source of fear. But nobody says that, so I have no hook to hang it on. The Vayatzmu opens itself more to being able to be read on a shot level as um, <clears throat> great strength versus frightening strength. Vayishritsu has built into our associations with the word a negative connotation. We've played a lot with roots before, right? So the, the first two letters of, of, of three-letter roots, families, and um, we've also played around with sometimes it's the second two letters of a root as opposed to the first two letters that suggest a family. Sometimes when you have the first and the third letters the same and the second letter are similar, they're also potentially from a similar family. So sheretz and shekets, 
they're not directly etymologically related, but they're also not completely unrelated. And Sheketz is something detestable. Sheretz is something that swarms. In the Torah, on our, uh, in Parshat Shmini, the things that are short seam are the things that we have to lishaketz, make detestable and not eat them. Mm-hmm. So the, the word itself has a, a baseline negative connotation differently than Vayat Smu. You're right, the Torah is explaining this as they, they, they swarmed like, 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 like uh, creepy crawlies. Um, Sue, Barry. You know, I always like to go back to the end of the last part where it said um, that that uh, uh, the Pakadu code. I'm counting you, I'm mm-hmm. counting you, I'm, I'm, I'm acknowledging each of you. Yeah. And we went, in, you know, three sentences from there to you should sue. Mm-hmm. And there's no more Pakadu code. Yeah, and it's 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 the story is diverging significantly numerically in verse seven, and the story is diverging on a plot level in verse eight. Verse eight, we are going to go from prosperousness and comfort and ease to the main storyline of the Jewish people, right, or at least of the Torah, enslavement. Barry, just on mathematics, uh, if we if we can take from some literature approximating Joseph's death at 128. Right. It's in the eight, it's in the seventies or eighties. Okay. If unless more time. time has passed, so then that's, that's it's fine. Yeah. Look, look at now for those of you who have the previous comment in Rashi, in the brackets. Um, again, in, in our printing, we have it, but not every comment of Rashi will have it. Do you have it, Matt? Paru, yeah. So there's a comment attributed maybe to Rashi, just on Paru. And so if Vayeshritsu meant that they gave birth to many per pregnancy, that's kind of supernatural. Paru is something natural, but also rare and wonderful. That in that generation, neither were they miscarrying, nor were they dying in infancy, right? So you can imagine them as a couplet, right? Rashi saying Paru means the things that sometimes happen when women of that generation who gave birth always happened, which means that they survived childbirth and survived, survived um, sorry, survived pregnancy and survived childhood, and also by Ishwitsu, that the whole process was under some kind of a mathematical supernatural um, equ- equation. 
the problem is is that it's very likely that that first co- that comment that we read second but appears first in the verse was not in the original uh, printing of Rashi anyway, but it's there. But it does set up what I wanted to read even more interestingly, which is Rashbam, which is Rashi's grandson. If you have in our book, it's on the right side of the column, second one down. I'll read this one um, as he deals with these verbs. Paru beherayon. There were many in pregnancy, which could mean they got pregnant a lot, or there were many per pregnancy. It's hard to know which one he means by that. Vayishvitsu, and they swarmed, leida, um, when it came to actually giving birth. Shaloshiklaharechem, that the womb did not bereave itself, meaning there it's a, it's a reference to miscarry. So it may be, if you put those two together, that it means that they, there, there were many pregnancies and many babies per pregnancy, paru, and when it came time to be turned into living human beings, they were born alive. Jumped to Vayirbu. Gadlu, Venasu, Haktanim, Dolim. They survived childhood, right? They grew, and the younger ones became bigger ones. Shalom, Meitu, Katnutam. They didn't die in their childhood. Ve, Ya'atzmu. Shalom, Meitu, Anashim. And even adults had lower mortality rates. Elechayu, Harbeh. Rather, they lived many years, right? So Rashbam breaks down the four, not to our ABAB, but suggesting different stages, right? They got pregnant, they were born, they survived childhood, and they didn't die young, right? If, if you do, if that happens to one, and only one part of a population in an era where mortality rates at all four of those stages are much higher than we can imagine, that's going to have a disproportionate impact on the on the size of the population, right? So Rashbam, as a you know, he's a as as a census taker, as someone who understands civics, under does a good job of filling that gap. How do we get from being seventy people in a nation to overwhelming a nation? Huh? Some version of natural and supernatural imp- impact on the birth. Sue. You think they close the yeshivas for coronavirus? <laughs> then? <laughs> well, you know, quarantine could produce a child boost. Oh, maybe. Right, as it did, I think I, I talked about this on Rosh Hashanah, that nine and a half months after the uh, first Gulf War in Israel, there was a child boom because Israelis were up in the middle of the night. Farah. Yeah. Starting earlier, fewer of them surviving, but more years of child of, of active childbearing years. Correct. Corey and then Larry, sorry. Larry, Corey, Corey, Larry. So I'm new to this. Please. Um, but um, why would we just not assume that the time period was elongated? And especially when they say a new king arose over Egypt who did not know about Joseph. 
if he didn't know about Joseph, why are we not just assuming it's maybe 15 generations? Right, right. So, um, we don't know. The to- this is, uh, this is a, one of the innumerable places in the Torah where it's terse, and therefore it's ambiguous and subject to interpretation. Because the ra- you, you, you're watching the rabbis of the Midrashic era and the medieval area, like, trying to figure that very thing out. Is this just a generation and a half? Then how do you make sense of the numbers? Or is this the Torah, was I saying, a long time later? And that's how, Ra- and, and you're going to see Rashi playing with that and struggling with that in, the, in his next commentary. He, we don't know how to understand the new king. Is it the next new king? Was he not new at all? Or is it many new kings later? It, it, it's, it's terse. Like, we, we understand, if we're reading the story for, as a cliff notes, right? We get it. There were not a lot of Jews, then there were a lot of Jews, and the Egyptians got nervous. But because we're not reading them as a cliff nose, but like we're reading every Shakespearean accent, we want to figure out how much information is gettable. And, and so much of the information is, is through our instinctual read, the Torah doesn't provide it. All the Torah says is, that generation's dead. Okay, we get that. There are many more. We get that. There's a new Pharaoh. We get that. One, you know, one generation, five, twenty, thirty. No, 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 no. Larry, then Norm. Well, I just want to thank you because it's Rashbam who supports my alternative reading. Okay. Because three of the four things he talks about are attributes of <clears throat> more developed, prosperous societies mm. that they they have more more inference actually more more births actually survive lower infant mortality in the first year of life and longer mortality. Mm. So in effect, and even the first one, more births, if you talk, if you think about uh, the, the uh, demographic inertia, it takes time for a society to reduce the number of births as they grow richer. Mm. Richer societies have fewer fewer births because mm. they need fewer births. So he's arguing that they prospered. Yeah, right. He's ar- arguing for a, na- a natural... A natural prospering, but a natural prospering more so than the people around them. Right. right? Conception, birth, childhood, longer lives. Yeah. Norm. When we talk about a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, I think it's not likely that it was simply merely another Pharaoh. You know, what I've learned in the past from some sources is that it starts a new dynasty because. If you were the Pharaoh who had prospered so greatly by having Joseph as your sidekick, um, your child, your grandchildren are likely to know about that. Right. Be taught about that. Be taught about the importance of these people, how to use them for your own benefit, perhaps. Somewhat Machiavellian. Yeah. But if that dynasty falls and a new dynasty arises, whether they're invaders from the east or elsewhere, or they're or they're nativists or whatever. That knows that Joseph knows that really means I think in this case not just doesn't know him personally but didn't know often didn't have a commitment to anything that he brought to Egypt and so for them here's an identifiable group that's associated with the previous dynasty it makes sense that they're not going to be Semitic. right and it may well be that it was that you know that the previous dynasty was the Semitic dynasty or the dynasty from the East that it was running things, but they fall and a nativist comes up in there, they don't like anybody who they can paint with the tarnish of being foreigners. Right, and and so two things before Matt comments. One, just to be very precise, we haven't read that verse yet. Like, we all know what's coming, and, we, and we'll, we're going to spend a lot of time on that verse, and your comment is 
is the um, the engine, the, f- the fuel, the fuel is the engine of Rashi's next two comments because we don't know how to, we will not know how to make sense of the newness of this king because we can't make sense of our own recent good history being eliminated. Right? We also live in an era where, where history is recorded in a different way. But, that's a, but you're exactly right, which is why Rashi can't figure out which way to go. Rashi is going to give us a, a, a very unusual saying, it's either this way or this way. He doesn't tell you which one he thinks it should be. Matt. Right. But the point is that it changed. Well, well, when, we, when we slow things down, this, here's a tautology. When we slow things down, we slow things down. And when you slow down a record, it, it, it doesn't have its same musical lyricism, right? So, right, we, we've really slowed things down, right? And you're right that we, all of the midrashic and medieval attempts to make sense of this... Um, Almost reduces some of its epicness, right? It's 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 less of an interesting movie if there's an explanation for how this all happened. And if you read it a little more quickly, not over quickly, it's as you said, seventy two. Wow, there are Israelites everywhere, right? And there's a, and it might make sense as a um, as a imbiber of the story to just let that be, right? But the rabbis never let anything be. Let's read verse eight because we've been referring to it um, a lot. And we're going to spend a good amount of time on it. So, verse 8, Vayakum. Everyone see where we are? Um, Rebecca, you want to read? Vayakum, Melech Hadash, Al Mitzrayim, Asher Lo Yada, And there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Yosef. A classic example of a verse that has no hard words, no hard syntax. There's no question of what it means, but we already have spent a half an hour pre-discussing what it means, right? Very simple, very um, rudimentary Hebrew. Right, the only, the only, only verb, only word that you could have a question about why it's that word and another word is vayakum, yeah. right? Vayakum from the root kam, which means to get up or to rise up. Why, why it could have been vayahi melachadash there was or or vayimane appointed or something, but but even there we we kind of know what it means right, but we don't know how to put this sentence into its proper context. Rick, Vayakum, the sun rises in the east, and the the pharaoh was was related to the sun god Ra, and um, um, to go along with what Norm was saying, different dynasties. Um, th- there was a whole thing about the, 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 the Pharaoh thought he was God, actually, in, in, in uh, physical form, but there was a rebellion against that, and there was a, a of that. But um, when I see back at home, like you said, it's not appointed, it's not elected or chosen or whatever, it's rising, like, it, it just, there's it an Egyptian influence there. Hmm. Interesting. Um, 
before we look at some of the commentaries, and, and on top of the questions we've already pre-asked on this verse, as we anticipated, any other questions you would ask on the verse? Diane? Yeah, the use of the verb yada, as opposed to makir. Makir? Yeah. So, um, maybe the translation is more like didn't know about Yosef, as mm. opposed to didn't know Yosef? Yeah. That's what my translation says. Didn't know about. Yeah. yeah. So in modern Hebrew, in general, yodea is knowledge and makir is familiarity with a person. In general, they're also inter- somewhat interchangeable. So you're saying if it was know the person, it, w- it would have made sense to be more makir. In fact, that's what Rasad Yagon says top right. He says shalohi kir. Right. Um, in biblical Hebrew, yada is both more of an interesting verb because it has that connotation of of, of intimacy, sometimes carnal in- intimacy. It's also the case that yada can just mean a per- knowing a person. So it, it, it's it, it, yada is both more of an interesting verb and less of an interesting verb in the Bible. But but I'm glad you raised that and keep that in mind as we read the uncle list. Tova and then Rebecca. Yeah, just a question on, on yada again. Could it be in the understood in terms of that? Did not acknowledge Joseph. Yeah. To, to, did not, did not, did not um, sh- show his acknowledgement of Yosef and Yosef's story. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially. And just a, a comment uh, on building on what Norm said earlier. Uh, <coughs> the fact that they indicated this is by Yaakov and Hadash, it does, I think, suggest the other new dynasty because the members of Dynasty are seen as almost a continuation of the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that emphasis on this is a hadash. Uh, I, I think that that is a possibility. Right, as opposed to the next king. Yeah. New exactly. king. Uh, Rebecca? Um, I just thought it was interesting to use the word melech instead of paro. Mm. I always think of, uh, uh, um, of course, they, they say paro when I'm looking at that, and, and Pharaoh said, um, so they. Yeah, right. Throughout most of the rest of the encounters between the Israelites and Moshe, it's going to be Vayomer Moshe El Paro, um, and here he's getting the moniker Melech Hadash. Right. Tova, you want to say something about that? Yeah, I just wanted to comment on one of the interesting things about the whole passage is the use of Paro, because the word Paro to refer to the ruler of Egypt did not occur in Egypt until very late in mm. the kingdom. Mm. Prior to that, paro, what it literally means is pera, it means the great house. It's like saying the White House or mm. the 10 Downing Street. Mm. And it was in that later period of the new, uh, new uh, kingdom that it became used to refer to the king himself. Oh, and the oh, fact oh. that paro is used in this account kind of places it temporally in terms of Egyptian history. Well, it shows how well God knew in advance the development of the Egyptian language. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> when, when, when was that? Like, it's, it, it, it's towards the end, very end of the Egyptian empire, mm-hmm. and it's Yeah, 
Well, the, the, the simplest, the, the simplest way we can understand the Torah's self-understanding of when this took place, yeah. right? If we if we if we jump over all the complications of historicizing this, right. it's about twelve to fourteen hundred BCE, right? right? Because they the, the the Exodus is considered, you know, around again, if we historicize it, twelve hundred, eleven eighty because you need the amount of time for them to get to the land of Canaan and have the era of the prophets before you get to what really can be historicized, which is Saul's kingdom leading to King David's kingdom around the year 1000. So it, it, it actually does make sense in terms of when we would put it on our timeline, but that doesn't answer the question as to when it was composed. right? Um, Stevie? Uh, yeah, just uh, the first thing, saying that I do Seth and not saying it was Seth the... Uh, know, and all of his deeds or something, right? The flow of Sherat's not in order. But, uh, it, I, I mean, the, the text is terse enough that I don't know the length, make a mountain out of that, but it, it does seem like another way the text could have been written in to, to say, Joseph and all of his deeds. Right. And so there are two ways one can respond to that. There are a hundred ways. But one is, it specifically, since it could have said, it doesn't mean that, Right? Therefore, it really means didn't know the guy, didn't know his name. Or, when it said it didn't know Joseph, what he meant was didn't know the whole story of Joseph and what he did. Look at Uncleus for a second before we look at Rashi. Uncleus is fascinating here. Right? So, Uncleus. Vikam, Vayakum. Malka, Melech. Chadata, Chadash. Right? The Shin in Hebrew becomes a Taf in Aramaic. Al, Al. Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim. Delo Nekayim Gzerat Yosef. What was new about this king? That he didn't um, perpetuate. You, you, what you mentioned before, um, Matt, the Sovietization of the uh, of the Egyptian economy. He didn't perpetuate Joseph's decrees. Meaning, what was new about this king? Whether whether or not he knew about Joseph, he did not keep going the economic. Uh, Infrastructure that Yosef had put forward, either willingly or or or, or not willingly, right? So that's his translation. So this is Uncleus about two thousand years ago, a thousand years before Rashi, jumping into the fray. What was new about this king? Was it right after? Did he did he not know the person? No. What I'm saying is that this is there's a, there's a new sheriff in town, and this sheriff is either not going to know or live by Joseph's rules or is going to pretend not to know by Joseph's rules, which is some fodder for Rashi's comments coming up as well. But it's a different sheriff. Maybe. Then how do you translate Makah Hadatah? I say maybe based on what Rashi's about to say. No, but if you sweep... Uncleus, yeah. I think Uncleus thinks of this as a new sheriff. The other commentators think it's the same. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Barry. So, uh, I haven't... I think there's a kind of a novel twist on this. Uh, but let's, let's look at the historical context. Uh, uh, Joseph has turned the entire country upside down. Uh, all the people are enslaved, searched themselves uh, to Pharaoh. They lost everything. And this is all Joseph's doing. Uh, this is not a happy people with the Israelites who come in to the country. Um, and uh, this, this was a young was a young pharaoh, I believe, who, uh, when he took over. And uh, uh, to maintain his position, uh, yeah, he needs to recognize what's going on. And so he, he professes to have, he's wiped out Joseph. 
and we need to restructure. We need, we need a refresh and restructure, and, and that's what. And it's not that it's it's not that number of years since the, since they arrived that this is happening. So it, it, he hasn't died yet. It's the same guy. He's young enough to still be there, and still young enough to exist through the entire story that we're in. Maybe, that's, right? That's, all, that's my twist. Right. So what? The, the only thing we can get from Uncle is, is that he he is reading. Going back into Stevie's question as to what the Yada means, the Yada is is some combination of knowing the person, knowing the story, acknowledging his knowing the story, and continuing to live by what he inherited in the annals of the recent history of the kingdom. Right. All of that is in the Lo Yada. He didn't do any of that. Just. This is a new chapter, right? And by the way, again, we, we, I, if your mind is anything like my mind, you're thinking of other moments in, in world history where new rulers, despotic new rulers, autocratic new rulers say, um, either I'm changing our definition of our recent history or I'm pretending the recent history didn't happen, and I'm certainly changing the definition as to who we're, consider, who we're considering loyal and who we're considering not be loyal, and whose impact on the kingdom or the nation we're going to consider to be positive and who's not. And I'm making a decision, and once I make the decision, that's law and lore for this kingdom. You could do that if you're a pharaoh. Sometimes you can even do it if you're an elected official. Mm-hmm. Let's go around. Barbara, Sue, we'll just go a lot of hands up. Dies, as does that generation. In 77, the land becomes filled with the Israelites. Yes. So that's several generations to have it become filled with generations. So you're probably talking 100, 200 years in that period of time. I mean, they were there for 400 years. They didn't have the historical documents that we have now to, to know what went on 100 or 200 years before. So it's not surprising that the kings didn't know about Joseph. Right. So that. that that's the argument for why it's not surprising to my Joseph. That's the argument for why it's not surprising. And there are counter-arguments that suggest that it's really surprising given the fact that, that the, um, this Joseph character uh, basically saved the nation from utter famine. And you would think that, that even in the ancient world that would have been recorded with some kind of posterity. So, again, we, we don't know. So all these suppositions as to what the verse might be are real possibilities. And again, we've been, we're probably not going to even get to the Rashi until next week. That's what Rashi is playing with. Sue. I was just thinking about how this is about, you know, a theme of our, of our existence. Yeah, and it's like Yeah. Um, that it shouldn't happen again. So we not where we where we've been. Right. And it's also very. It's not only Pesach related. It's also Purim related. Right. Right. Parshat Zachor and Timchad Zecher Amalek Lo Tishkach. And the whole. It's amazing. I, every year on Purim, um, during the during the times in the Gilead that I get to kind of just be in the pew and not either reading myself or, or running the services, I end up not intentionally, just this happens unconsciously, focusing on a different part of the story to just zoom in on, right? I don't I, I intentionally come to the Megillah reading without commentaries. I just wanna I wanna I wanna read the shot, I wanna hear the shot come into my mind. This year, um, certainly unconsciously related to the, this class today, I was not aware that I was making the connection, I kept thinking about how many references there are in the 
long-form story about writing things down, recording it, being recorded in the annals of, of Medes and Persia, and Mordechai recording it and making sure it's recorded, and they did it because he recorded it, and then all the Jews are going to know this, and they're going to know it because it's recorded and recorded. Like, the notion of keeping this story, however fanciful, you know, half historical, half historical it is, keeping it as a way of, of impacting our behavior 2,500 years later is a very, very Jewish thing. It's also a human thing, but it's not the same, it doesn't have the same um, impact in every human civilization, right? So we don't know. Tov, I'm sure, knows a bit more than all of us does, but we don't know exactly how Egyptian record keeping took place 2,500 years ago. But even if it took place well, we're also aware of the power mm-hmm. of a particular type of leader to ignore or change or, or make disappear history. Well, That's a powerful know, thing. In our modern world, it's all about Yeah. yeah. Uh, Marshall. You know, I was thinking, thinking Uncleus must have looked, looked at this verse by Yaakov Melech Hadash. He said, hey, I know this word by Yaakov in a different form. I know it in a PL form. So therefore he said, not only did a new thing arise, but also he did not fulfill something. That's what I think what what, Temp, what brought about Uncle's comment. He didn't want the Torah does not repeat the word the Shoresh Kum in the same uh, verse. Right. But Uncle's had no problems using the same verse. Spell out, Marshall, what you're saying, because I'm not sure that connection is obvious to everyone on the table. Well, the Shoresh, the root of the word like Kum, Kupa Bam, is like a Pa'al form, and then the Kayen is a P'al form which is a stronger form. Right. So, cool, he arose. Okay, what's the big deal about he arose? Yeah. But the Kayin, he actually fulfilled something, but here it's below Kayin, he right. did not fulfill right. something. I had not picked up on that. It, it, it can't be an accident, right? Because Rashi is, is, a, is a master of the words. <laughs> Lick Kayin is to make the, the thing that got established last, right? So, it's Kam Likayim, very good, right? By the way, that, that verb is also in the Megillah. Right, kiam kimlu kimuva kiblu. The Israelites, you know, established and they accepted and established this rule that Purim would be observed this way. So yes, that's wonderful that Rashi is using lekayim in a verb in a, in a sentence that begins with a new king kayaming. What did I say? Yeah. Well, Runklos is probably basing basing himself on the Rashi. <laughs> Tova. <laughs> Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I, I apologize in advance, but I do historicize this. Uh, and, and I do think it's likely that we're talking about the beginning of the 19th dynasty. And what's interesting about that is the previous dynasty was centered in Thebes, which is the southern part of Egypt. It's not in the Delta. The 19th dynasty was founded by a family that wasn't the royal family. And they were a Delta family. And it's one of the few times in Egyptian history where the central government was actually in the Delta area, uh, as opposed to farther south. And I find that intriguing because that means that, in a real sense, they might have known. <coughs> but that's why I asked about acknowledge, mm. because it's one of those things that, in a way, it's easier for a distant government to say these people are useful. They're way up there. You know, they're they're helping us in certain ways, but they're not a threat. Now there's a dynasty that's literally in the midst of them. That's great, Tova. And all the more so, the very nearness of them makes them a much greater. Oh. That's great. And and also, therefore, nearer to where the 
they come from and where we'd like them to go back 100%, to. Hundred percent, because in fact Great. the family that that dynasty came from were a military family that was stationed in Tanis yeah. after the Hyksos had been driven out. Wow. That is, the Semitic rulers at the beginning of the previous dynasty had been driven out and then had stayed there and become priests of. I mean, it, yeah. yeah but it's a version of imagining what American diplomacy or, or yeah. politics might be under any administration if the capital were moved to San Diego. Right. right, or any border town, right? Like it, it would, it would, it would, even unconsciously would impact how right. a, a leader of any party would think about what it means to be a border, a border city, border nation. Uh, last few comments, then we'll uh, Leonard. So uh, regarding the word yada, yes, the JPS has a couple sentences on what that word really means. Okay. In the biblical conception, knowledge is not essentially or even primarily rooted in the intellect and mental activity. Rather, it is experiential or and is embedded in the emotions, so that it may encompass such qualities as contact, intimacy, concern, relatedness, and mutuality. Hmm. Conversely, not to know is synonymous with disassociation, indifference, alienation, mm. and estrangement. Great. It culminates in callous disregard for another's humanity. Hmm. Um, I'll leave you with one uh, one word. It's, 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 it's actually a part of a verb form. When, when um, Everett Fox, who knows all of this material, and now has to like take the material and translate the sentence, which again, everyone knows what it means, but no one, no one knows what it means. He, does, he adds... He adds a word that changes the tense. Now a new king arose over Egypt, fine, who had not known Yosef. He puts a had in there. E- Hebrew does not have a, have a, a, a pluperfect, but English does, right? Had known is different than known. How it's different is very interesting. You could, spend, you could write a, an essay on how it's different, but it's different. And what you can think about between now and next week is what is Everett Fox trying to say about what was and what was not known by adding in the had. Not that who didn't know Yosef, but who had not known Yosef. Mm-hmm. It, like you can sense that there's something important in that choice. I'd love to invite him in and discuss the 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 use of that word "had." But I know he's onto something. Um, my uh, guess is that next week. Well, first of all, I hope we're meeting in person next week. But I obviously will let you know if that doesn't happen. Um, we're going to read Rashi on this and several other commentaries on the page because it's really wonderful and so timely to figure out how we deal with the information we know and the information we pretend not to know. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.